Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 32. My name is DK, the founder of Creative Welly and the creative producer. Big shout out to John Oteca, who is the video producer, because this is a video podcast, so please check out the video. But I appreciate some of you want the audio version, so this is it. But thanks to John O, video producer from Empire Films, who makes it as beautiful as it looks. Equally, thanks to David Hamilton over at Flashdog Studios for hosting us as well. In this episode, we get to chat with Michelle Kitney, Chief Executive at Volunteering New Zealand, and also Rob Cousins, Innovation Manager at the Crown Entity that is WorkSafe. In this episode, obviously, we get into the state of volunteering in New Zealand and the impact it has. Also, innovation and health and safety. And we get them to talk about their backgrounds as well a little bit and how they approach the work that they do. Enjoy. What is your motto? That's the first question to kick us off with and roll in. That's a tricky one. It is. Some people have a saying, right, that they really adhere to. Some people have sets of sayings that they use and roll out on occasions. Do you have anything that comes to mind straight away? I have not one that I've had in my mind and used in the past. Mm -hmm. Whether I might update it, I don't know. But it has been, um, you get what you put up with. So, um, you know, if you... uh, don't like something or you want to see something change, then you actually have to be part of the solution to kind of make that happen. So, That's yeah. a good one. Get what you put up with. Do you yeah. remember where that came from, by the way? I think it just in series of conversations with friends, like talking mm. through, you know, something that wasn't working or, um, you know, be it relationships or a situation at work and just sort yeah. of evolving from there. I can't remember where it actually came from. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you, Rob, got anything stinging in your brain that comes out? Um, Not not really. I always find that, you know, mottos are... There's always an opposite that's just as good, isn't there? Like, you know, people that think the early bird catches the worm, but they also (laughs) think, look, before you leap. You know, there's always a a counter to it. Um, So I always think it sort of depends. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess my friends would probably say I'm just always just wondering what's going to happen next. You know, you make a plan, what's going to happen next? Something's difficult, rights and wrongs of it don't matter so much, what's going to happen next? You know, and just sort of focus on the mm. next step. Like, if you don't know what you're working towards in your project yet because it's a bit more emergent, just mm. do the next bit. And okay. It's probably, get it. probably more a way of being than a, mm. than a motto. I think I had something similar um, emerge when I was a new parent, which was quite hard in the early days, which, um, you know, so there were some days that were really, really difficult and really hard, but I kind of knew that the next day would probably, on balance, be better, so tomorrow would be a better day, and Mm. um, yeah, there was always a way to kind of lift me through (laughs) that day into the next, sort of one step at a time. Yeah. 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 And there's that classic one, this too will pass. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, you're in a Malay, and it's like, okay, I know this is going to change. Maybe for worse or better, but you hope for better. <laughs> That's a good one, though, the motto, because it's yeah. very personal. Rather than a saying you like, the motto is a bit more deeper. I don't think I have one, you're right. I have so many quotes and sayings in my brain that I pull out at times. Although I do really love the uh, Rilke. Uh, Reina Maria Rilke, he's a poet, um, very, very, 
He's terrific, isn't he? He's great. Yeah. I love him. He wrote uh, letters to a young poet. Uh, might ring a bell, but um, he wrote, uh, "The only journey is the one within," which is always mm. kind of a deep, deep thing for me to consider on occasions. And uh, know thyself is a similar one. You know, so yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about courage, just because that's the tagline of Creative Welly. And I wanted to kick off with that and start with this kind of emotional, I suppose, mindset of if we talk about courage within our industries slash experiences of life and stories that we've both tell and encounter, what does courage look like for you in your respective fields? <laughs> As we all shoot our luck. <laughs> I, I always feel quite clear on Courage, like mottos I get a bit, so, oh, well, it kind of depends. But um, mm-hmm. courage, I think, for me, is, is all about individual <clears throat> individuals or individual experience. It's what you choose to do or, or don't do. Um, yeah, I, remember, I remember reading a book when I was younger, um, yeah, it was a couple of decades ago now, but it was all about um, different types of courage. You know, that was, you know, spiritual courage, physical courage, emotional courage, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, the different types. And after reading that, I, I just couldn't think about it in any other way. It's really choosing to be yourself in spite of everything that's happening. That's nice. And, you know, that might be choosing to do something or choosing not to do something that's kind of goes against the sort of social pressure or mm. the norms of a situation but because you feel it's right. Um, or it could be, you know challenging yourself in some sort of physical activity if you're scared mm. you know not not leaning into that but leaning into the doing instead mm. but um i think it's not so much just the being yourself as the it was the in spite of thing yeah. you know when you're on your own and people aren't believing in what you're putting forward or you know you have a particular way of thinking or understanding that that you just feel is more compelling or more suitable more useful more relevant more up to date mm. Um, better at solving whatever problem it is, you know, but you, you stick to it mm. in spite of what anyone else is saying or even if the systems for doing it are sort of driving you to think differently. But sticking just in spite of is... Could you give me an instance that, from your life that illustrates that point? Um, it's most, most of my work since I've been in, in Wellington has, has usually been bringing a different approach to understanding something. Mm. Um, I sort of feel a bit tortured with it, really, because it's all I feel I can do. But you always end up in these situations where, you know, the, the organisation you're working for is sort of not quite understanding what it is you're, mm. you're putting forward. Um, so I'm like right now looking at the health and safety work that I'm doing with, with WorkSafe. You know, we're trying to get people to shift from, here's a hazard, put this control on it, there's a risk, which is very compliance-based. It's rules for people. There's no variability in it when people actually have to change mm-hmm. according to what's happening in a situation. You know, Three trucks are going to turn up in a goods yard, whatever process you put in. They'll turn up at the same time and there won't be enough space. You kind of need to know what to do. Mm-hmm. But just having the paper, what does that do? You know, it's, it's more of a human thing. Like People create safety in what they do, choose to do, or choose not to do. Um, but when you think of it in that way, your paperwork 
the thing people hold on to or the thing people feel absolves their sort of liabilities falls away mm. and they're stuck with this how do I deal with variable conditions without proper controls of being able to tell people what to do mm. or you know we we as government can't solve people's problems for them so you have to sort of step into um like co-owning problems with bigger organizations talking them into coming into a shared space to, to mm. understand something and in doing that you know you're sort of or well, from from government's point of view you can be seen to be consulting with people who should be dealing with their own problems but you know the truth is they're not and they can't they need a bit of help so that's not solving things for them it's actually just helping them come together in a higher frame of reference to see things differently mm. which is not solving their problems it's actually creating an environment where they can see things to work collaboratively but I guess those ways of thinking and those ways of working don't fit into a standard public service model and so you know you get sort of told you'll spoil things for the organization you'll make the um, legal team work harder because it will be harder for them to yeah. you know defend their cases or put their cases together it's, it's not true but that's the anxiety that sits there of you know, the policies that exist don't fit with that they don't say you can't do it but they don't say you can do it either so to me it's a gray area to explore but mm. to many people it's a place where there are dragons and danger and you should stay away from um, so how would you for those who don't know what WorkSafe is like just hear that out your mouth health and safety government what is WorkSafe? WorkSafe is the primary health and safety regulator for the government. So it's not an agency, it's a crown-owned entity, so it's Mm. sort of separate from what ministers do. Um, But their role is to, well, enforce the law, Mm -hmm. um, so the health and safety laws. Their role is to um, help sort of engage and educate around what good practice looks like, but without telling people what good practice looks like mm-hmm. because that solves people's problems for them. Yeah. And in terms of the sectors that you cover? Um, well, I guess this is traditionally it's been agriculture, manufacturing, construction and forestry because they're where the most harm happens, most injuries, most deaths. And that's where a lot of the attention goes as well. And particularly in well, a couple of those sectors is um, more Māori and Pacifica workers that, mm. you know, have... Um, sort of their equity to be looked at. Um, But the difficulty is they get honed into looking at those sectors, which they should focus on because they've got the highest harm. But bad things still happen in other sectors too, and you can't ignore it, even though your primary focus is there. And when you look at some of the problems that exist, so you think about mental well-being in the workplace, or you think about um, risk of harm, those things aren't tied to sectors. They're actually sort of cut across the whole workforce. Mm. So you end up with you know, any workplace and any business and any person involved or interacting with those places becomes the scope. So it's quite hard for yeah. you know, a small organisation to have all people that do work in any capacity anywhere as your scope. Big well, remit. Well, that's too big, <laughs> but four sectors is too small. Yeah. So, yeah. And your role within that as the innovation manager? 
if we're going to linger just yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really of... don't like that job title. Well, okay. Well, people people think of innovation as like you know beanbags and you know having happy times and that Most sort of thing. So it's, it's really just finding new ways of working. You know, if, yeah. if you're deciding that the paperwork doesn't keep you safe, but people do, mm. you actually come up with different ways of talking about what happens. You know, there's stories that people have shared with us about. Oh, there's one um, really great guy that used to sort of run some of the infrastructure firms down in Christchurch. And he was really getting nervous because he wasn't, he wasn't getting his health and safety information through. Or when he looked at it, he didn't understand what it was. So he thought, I need to understand more. He thought, this is a good thing. So he went out with one of his crews. I mean, they went and dug holes in the ground. was the sort of main task that they did. And um, so he turned up at this site. And there were a couple of utes there. And, um, you know, he saw his um, work team just drawing a picture on the bonnet of the ute about the layout of the site. Who's going to do what? You know, and they were sort of adding in all the sort of local knowledge. Like one of the guys had been there before and knew there was some, you know, terrible dog that was, you know, down the way. Like, you know, so they were adding in all the sort yeah. of local things that you need to know. And then he sort of saw this guy in the cab of the ute over there. And, um, and he, he sort of asked them, well, what, what's he doing over there? And he said, oh, he's filling out the health and safety paperwork. <laughs> he's like, but, but he's not listening to this. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's got to get the paperwork done. <laughs> but it really sort of brought home to him the difference between, yeah. you know, we, who is going to be keeping people safe out of that group? It's not the guy in the camp filling out the paper. It's actually, you know, people that are going to do the work, talking about how they're going to do it, what resources they have, and how they're going to set it up. But you can't write in your health and safety system, we have intuitive ways of doing things. Kind of is a yeah. bit too broad. Yeah. So my, my job is about trying to turn those sorts of activities or moments into legitimate interventions for health and safety planning. So you put the people and the activities that, that people are planning and undertaking. Have we got enough resources? Are we making good trade-offs? Those sorts of approaches at the center of people's understanding of what health and safety is and is about. That's my job. Kind of a cool gig. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. You go meet, you meet a lot of people that, um, <laughs> well, I guess, you, you know, you meet the sort of trailblazers in this space. You know, there's a guy up in Auckland that I think is terrific. Like he's, he's trying to start this war on bureaucracy in health and safety. Um, that's his language. And he's, He's a really nice guy to talk to, but he's also very precise and combative. And, uh, you know, you sort of listen to all the things that he wants to get rid of because, you know, he's happy to have paperwork that helps because some of it does. But all that other stuff, just get rid of it. Don't need it. It's just a waste and undermines people looking at the things that do matter. And, and he went through a big list of things with me that he wanted to get rid of. Like, it wasn't just me. He was talking to sort of other health and safety consultants and lawyers and so on. But he listed out all of these things that um, people cling on to in the, in, the, um, in the industry as being, well, you need one of these. You, you know, this is, but he kept looking at them going, this is, this is silly. This is, what does this do? Like the, you know, every building site, there's this sort of hazard board up the front that's got you know, writing on it. And um, in all my years here, I have never seen anyone even read one. So what does it do, you know? But someone's still got to take the time to write it up and put it out. Mm. Um, yeah, 
but I think I've seen ones that have said, you know, you know, hazard, you know, builders bums, you know, controls don't look. <laughs> it's quite quite funny. <laughs> but if they're not doing anything, why do you bother? But the idea of getting rid of it and everyone's like, Oof, yeah. oh, no, but um, but he wants to get rid of all this. And the reason he wants to get rid of it is because they're useless and they don't do anything. If they don't do anything, what's the point? But, yeah. you know, I guess that's the courage thing is, you know, to say that out loud yeah. in the industry is like, really, can you, can you do that? Because mm. it's seen as such a formative thing. But when you look at what he wants to replace it all with, he's quieter on that stuff. But there's like 15 things he wanted to get rid of and seven or eight of them get eyebrow raises because, you know, they're right. so core. But the thing he wants to replace it with is... This wonderful thing, people that come and work for them, they have their skills assessed. Mm-hmm. So you know what they can do and what they can't do. Yeah. And that doesn't matter what qualifications you've got. Because mm. even if you get qualified in something, you're still good at some things and less good at others. Yeah. And then you kind of get tasks tailored to what you're able to do. And you get development in the things that you can't mm-hmm. do. And um, it's really broadened the idea of what an expert is as well. Because there's not one guy on the site that knows everything and controls all of that. Mm. Actually, you know, you, you might be the guy that knows drop source perfectly well. So you can teach me that bit if I'm not so good at that. And you might understand something about, um, you know, how to use the, um, the, the diggers to dig holes and spotting where the underground cables are. But if you're so good at that, yeah. you know, it's a practical thing. You won't get taught on a course, but I'm having you to do that. And he sort of creates that sort of network in the, crew of people that are working on the mm. site and when you think in that way it's people are right in the middle you're set up to succeed all of the things that they need or might not realize that they need are made available to them mm. it's a really nice system but for him he can ditch all these silly paperwork things but it sounds like that there's an entrenchment of attitudes and processes in a lot of this stuff but also that relies heavily on community the mm. idea of a group of people coming together and sharing knowledge and doing that classic Venn diagram of overlapping skills and insights. But that's a community, you know, yeah. and that's where the strength comes from. That's what I'm kind of hearing back. And refocusing then the energy from the entrenched kind of ways of writing everything down to the more human-led approach. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, I think I enjoy... That pe- when you think in that way, mm. people stop becoming the... You know, I'm the advisor at this. I'm the, you know, supervisor for this. And you actually just connect with everything that they know and understand yeah. how they want to do. You know, most of, like most of the people at WorkSafe have had other lives doing something else. You know, there's nurses, mental health nurses. There's mm. people that have been on the tools for 15, 20 years. Like, you just connect with everything that that person brings. Mm. And um, it's more honest about who they are and what their skills are. And uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. What about you, Michelle? In terms of courage, um, <clears throat> so much um, resonated with me with what you were saying, Rob. But um, I think, in terms of uh, courage, I think there's a real connection to leadership, and that everyone has the capacity to be a leader and to lead out in their space. So you're, the man you were just describing, he's. Um, feeling empowered and leading and creating change. Um, but you're also talking about creating an environment where everyone 
can actually participate and mm -hmm. uh, step into that leading change space. And I think um, partly that's about the environment which we, we create um, for people. And, um, yeah, I think that, uh, for me, courage um, is often um, doing things that I actually find scary um, okay. or hard or, you know, trying new things and... Um, I guess that um, sort of back to that um, concept of motto, but the um, the you know fearing the fear and doing it anyway yeah. um, is uh, you can do that in any space in terms of yourself and uh, lead out and create change. Um, yeah, so I think that's uh, yeah some of my reflections around courage. Um, mm. There was so much in what you were just saying, Rob, that I'd love to talk to you outside of it. Oh, I, <laughs> I, um, I lead Volunteering New Zealand, which is the a peak body for volunteers and volunteering. So there's actually um, quite a crossover with the um, Health and Safety at Work Act um, in terms of our sector. Um, but there's also um, a bunch of... So there's 1.2 million well no there's one there's about one million volunteers so 115,000 not-for-profits 90 percent of them are volunteer run mm. and um wow it's incredible stats it's incredible but in terms of the crossover um that 90 percent actually sits outside of some of the core elements of the health and safety at work act because they're non-pcbus we won't go into technical okay. detail but um yeah. so there's um a whole space where um, ideas and um, yeah, there's less guidance from um, WorkSafe for the, that group, but yeah. there's a whole space where impact could be made. Yeah, so yeah. So let's linger on kind of yes, courage. <laughs> so then, but volunteering NZ in terms of its membership organisation um, and how long have you been heading up that for now, and kind of what are you the current work plan? going on at the moment? Um, I've been there f about five years and mm. I've been in the CEO role since 2019. Mm. I came into that like literally just before COVID. Mm. So um, I feel like uh, the work plan since then has been uh, intensely busy and reactive. Um, and uh, in terms of what we do, we are, a, as you said, a membership organisation. We've got 100 national organisations that are members. Some of those are regional volunteer centres as well. So within those, um, well, sitting under those 100 national organisations is around 10,000 community organisations. So where we're a, a membership organisation, a lot of our members are also membership organisations or right. yeah, have their own subset of organisations. And our work focuses on uh, advocacy, so um, being the voice from the sector to government, research. We do a state of volunteering report on a regular basis, so we're uh, identifying trends and issues emerging in the volunteering space. And we lead out on National Volunteer Week and other celebratory campaigns that mm. you know, uh, raise the vis visibility and um, celebrate volunteers. So, mm. yeah. And you mentioned earlier about the scale of volunteering in New Zealand. Has that changed over the 
last five years since you've been there and how has COVID as well affected that? Because there was a huge amount of community activity around COVID, right? Yeah, and um, so there's different ways to count participation. Yeah. And um, so New Zealand is actually, in terms of like other OEC, OECD countries, like the, has the highest rates of volunteering, which is um, awesome. We know that there's, um, there's one survey which actually tells us that 2.5 million people contribute to communities through in, like directly to organizations or informally by supporting other people. Right. So that's okay. a, when you sort of take a wider lens yeah. and try and count the full measure of who's participating mm. um, and supporting communities through giving their time and their mahi. It's huge. Yeah. Um, and that's probably still an undercount because of the way we collect the stats data. It's not necessarily representative of... Um, doesn't necessarily capture how all communities mm. uh, see their contributions um, within the volunteering space. So it's probably bigger than that. Um, we have seen um, coming, as we've came into COVID, we dropped in terms of those formal numbers for volunteering. So that's people who do work, volunteer work within organisations. So those 115,000 not-for-profits mm-hmm. was, I think, 1.2 million in 2013 and it dropped down to about 1 million in 2018. So those are sort of the things we know going into COVID. Um, There were a range of um, trends coming into COVID as well where there's an ageing volunteer workforce. Uh, Mm. Organisations report challenges engaging young and new new volunteers Um, and probably would have seen, probably we've seen um, uh, that formal volunteering workforce doesn't necessarily reflect the full diversity of Aotearoa. Right. Um, COVID um, had a huge impact in terms of programs, obviously things being shut down, yeah. um, not able to run under the operating restrictions, which was mm. understa- obviously understandable, but um, at the same time a huge upswing in mm. um, just an awareness of how important community connectedness and neighbourliness and um, supporting each other was in those sort of early days of um, 2020. So actually, near the end of 2020, we saw some organisations, not all, but some reporting um, an explosion in volunteer um, interest and actually having not having enough roles for the people that were coming forward. I think... um, over the last year, we've probably seen, um, and we don't have official numbers, so it's um, something we don't necessarily count, so it's anecdotal, but um, we still see challenges with volunteer recruitment, um, well-being of across community organisations sort of um, dipping a bit through the last year, and this is... Um, so we have done some survey work, uh, and that's sort of getting us to about August 2021. So we don't know what the impact of mm. the last um, sort of delta to Omicron will have on volunteer participation. Wow. I think um, the key thing that I think when you talk to people um, is probably the, the, the reason why we um, many people contribute and do and volunteer is to 
um, to have community connectedness, mm. um, meet people, support people, do something for their communities. And when it's more online or if it's, you know, stressful, like it has been over the last few we while there's less um, people are sort of reporting they're not getting the same joy at the moment from their volunteering. Um, so right. hopefully as these uh, restrictions have, we're moving out of a restrictive phase and we might see... Yeah, more volunteering and more community, coming together face-to-face and mm. hopefully, yeah, things are on the up. And the, the reports that you write, the annual state of volunteering reports, uh, when was the last one and where are you at with this one? So um, the last one was dated 2020 and the data was pulled out just before pandemic hit, oh, so yeah. it's a really great benchmark. Yeah. Um, and we've got surveys in the field at the moment for um, our 2022 one, and we'll be publishing that in October, yeah. November. Just see how, on, <laughs> how the ongoing impacts of COVID impact our work life. Um, we're a very small team, but yeah, October, November. And we so we have a survey of volunteers and a survey of organisations, um, but we're also doing um, some additional focus groups and research to lift into our document voices that you won't necessarily hear as much through surveys so that's cool yeah and in terms of how you go about writing that report (laughs) do you do it internal do you have like uh, like a a body of people that go out and report for you and do you collate it all together with an independent adjudicator I don't know what's what's the process that's a great question so we we do run it internally yeah Um, I have a really great team uh, so we've got a probably an FT of about 3.5 people, but there's actually about eight of us. Um, not everyone's full-time. One of my staff members is actually based in Oxford, and he's an academic there. He's worked for us over a number of years and on the last report, so he's, the I guess, the project lead on gotcha. State of Volunteering Report. He's the report writer, um, but we've had a... Um, we went through a co-design process, not a co-design process, but like a, um, a very, uh, I guess, an evaluative process with our um, stakeholders that we knew used the last report a lot. And before we actually wrote the questions and decided what the content might look at, we heard from them um, and sort of fi- found out exactly the bits that were missing from the last one. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. So, um, and we also have a internal staff member uh, who is working specifically on the? Um, we've got a, we've done some focus groups with Tangata Whenua and uh, we've got someone writing up the um, Mahi Aroha section for that. Um, who is one of our paid staff members as well? Is there a different approach with Maori and Pacifica perspectives on volunteering and Pakeha? Absolutely, and yeah. um, I think there's also commonalities. Um, in terms of um, the why, um, but yeah, I think absolutely, and that's why we. So there's we're doing um, a bit of work in terms of um, with the, our focus groups and like looking at the other research that's already there around mahi aroha. Um, there's also just come out recently an amazing report from Ministry of Pacific Peoples on volunteering 
and economic contribution within Pacific mm. communities. So um, they surveyed 3,000 community members and ran eight or nine talanoa with each of their um, Pacific communities. Yeah. And so um, what you can see in that report is um, nine different ways of talking about volunteering, nine different definitions oh. within each of their communities. So um, there's not really one way to talk about it. We, I mean, we use the word volunteering as yeah. a kind of a code, so we're kind of all talking about something similar. Um, but for some uh, Māori, some Pacific peoples, the word volunteering just does not resonate and m- might actually make them think, mm-hmm. that's just not me. Right. It doesn't actually capture what I'm contributing um, to my whānau, my community, my people. Mm. Fascinating. But I do think uh, manakitanga relationships, um, aroha, people mm. uh, are things that connect us across all communities yeah. in terms of how we how we give. Mm. Yeah, and, and yeah, a, a lot of similarities across different community, communities about the why. Like it is usually about making um, now and the future better. They're much more powerful concepts to work with, aren't they? It's sort of quite linear, isn't it, in our Pākehā world, you know, volunteer to achieve this or to do this or to help with this. But oh, okay. to pull it back into this is how we want to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a much bigger or more compelling yeah. reason, isn't it? Can I, can I join in with a question? So I see you, you talked about um, Ministry of um, Pacific Peoples doing their volunteering's um, economic contribution. And I, w- I always feel like I used to read those sorts of reports like eight, nine years ago, you know, we're now going to do social economic contributions, which is then, you know, find a societal outcome, imagine a number and then multiply it and you come up with a sort of, you know, it's like, you know, 15 billion now. It's like this invented mathematics in the background. If um, I was thinking about, um, you know, an economic contribution is how do you... How does what you do prop up an economy in some way? But like, even even economists now accept and understand that there's a there's a human condition that things contribute to that doesn't have economic measures, or um, there's the environment that we're creating for ourselves to live in, like that sense of future that we're trying to create. That um, that equally you can't measure in economic metrics. You know, they might be descriptive of something, but they don't tell you what's really happening it's just a very sort of blinkered blinkered view so i'm curious about how how volunteering is starting to be seen in in those wider dimensions like the language that's being used now or you know the the trajectory and people's understanding of of volunteering in those contexts does that make sense yeah no absolutely there's a lot in there yeah you've got a big space to talk around absolutely and um so, um, absolutely, you can't actually put a value on the actual impact or mm. contribution that volunteers or people building community through action. Um, uh, yeah, it's hard to measure. And um, some people say it's priceless, um, but obviously with the change in well, like approach to economics and the wellbeing budget and 
um, frameworks that are coming out, there is more of an awareness, but I don't know if there's a way to measure it. That's mm-hmm. what's still missing. Um, and I think um, without nece- necessarily being able to, when you can't measure it, then actually it's so massive that it's actually hard to have the conversation about how important it is. So um, I think we've tracked through um, working with stats that actually do measure it. So we know that um, in the informal volunteering space within those organisations where it is captured, that contributes four, $4 billion to GDP, mm. volunteer labour. Um, then there's all the other stuff that happens outside of that um, within communities um, spontaneously. Um, it's not always seen as volunteering. Um, yeah, I think there's a whole... Uh, I think there's an awareness of how important that is, but it's not always um, how do you measure it and how mm-hmm. do you capture it, and then how do you actually provide for that through policy making? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's actually, um, you know, volunteers, people in communities have underwritten the COVID response um, across the motu, so um, we know it's vital. We, I mean, we've always known it's vital, right? But um, mm. Yeah, I think there's a greater awareness of it. Um, I think you can see in the Living Standards dashboard, they've now added in measures for volunteering, which is awesome, but they're actually still at rates of participation, balance sheet of um, not-for-profits. So it's still um, yet to get to the more complicated kind of... It's pretty basic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Quantitative versus qualitative, right, almost. So, so the Living Standards Aotearoa, um, they, um, Aotearoa indicators, that they basically have included volunteering as a metric, as an indicator since they launched in 2019. And that's a, something we were advocating for and we were really mm. excited to see that. Mm. So um, they've got it there as an indicator, but the measure still is participation. Um, so we've got a bit of a clearer idea and um, we're counting participation, but they they know in, that it's just still a draft measure, basically. So yeah. there's some work to do there. What do you think would be wonderful to use as measures or indexes? Yeah. What would capture the essence <laughs> of it? <laughs> oh, that is yeah. um, quite a hard question. And yeah, yeah, I, um, that's where I think we all need to kind of uh, you know, we're an organisation of 3.5 hmm. FTEs and I was really super, super excited to see the Ministry for Pacific People's research um, it, and it's actually based on what people told them, not about quantifying it hmm. and, um, you know, seeing other government, depart- government departments or other people or organisations measuring, valuing and, you know, surfacing how important volunteering or community participation is would be really awesome mm. i'm not going to do it by myself <laughs> no no how important is it to also extract and celebrate the individual and collective stories though is that part of your role at volunteer we definitely that? do that yeah yeah so um we really aim to kind of focus on sharing a diverse range of stories so that um, through our work people can see that there's a huge spectrum of ways that people can give and um, contribute to communities so it's not just um, you know a p- 
Pākehā-centric kind of way of participating. Mm. Um, we're still a small organisation, so mm. what we, um, when we run our National Volunteer Week campaigns, we are really trying to empower organisations or enable organisations to actually celebrate their own volunteers or their own yeah. community actions. Um, so, yeah, we want to see uh, uh, yeah, as many stories celebrating volunteering yeah. as possible, and I think that is definitely a way of... Um, describing the impact um, mm-hmm. yeah. it was that humanisation of impact isn't it yeah. and we can always like to see ourselves in it or just reflect through a human lens especially when it's emotional uh, of the impact of any type of work I suppose kind of that's the correlation of some kind of overlap here in terms of some of your work I would imagine is humanising processes as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, it's the, the individual stories are where the power is, mm. isn't there? You know, because that's where you see, I get it now. I, I see what connection that creates and what that contributes to. But, mm. but when you then aggregate it, you think, yeah. oh, what is that, you know, number of people involved in something? It's like, it doesn't really tell you anything or, you know, it's mm. unsatisfactory. It's, you know, trying to explain that power. Yeah. And you know, I guess we get caught in... Um, you know, these sort of participatory management practices of being a really good thing. It's where you, you know, you, you devolve authority and autonomy to people to have, like, agency over the things that they do. I mean, that's an mm. abstract phrase, but it just means that you've got control over what you do and how you do it, making sure you've right. got the things you need to get it done and you can improve it if it's not working for you. Like, that's the situation. Um, and we're trying to sort of encourage more use of sort of management practices that do that like you know self-managing teams high performance high engagement approaches it's sort of corporate strategies that get you there by putting the work in the middle and you build out what you need from there um like there's loads of them but you know you try and sort of advocate for that and people want to know the or the economic contribution of these and you can't quantify it because you come back to you know engagement rates but that's only an index of many other things it's not helpful you know you try and tie or create a measurement framework that ties participatory management practiciness of something like you'd, you'd never be able to come up with a quantifiable framework for that with shift in productivity in a meaningful sense for an organization like both of those are flexible unstable concepts mm-hmm. so to create measurement for those is you know, it's like, I don't know, trying to put something wet on something else really wet. Like, it's just not going to, it's not going to mix. Um, but it seems to be the thing people are asking for. And, yet, you know, it's kind of trying to find a, a different way of talking about something that is meaningful, mm. but doesn't get pulled back into, you know, some sort of economic construct, which is mm. just going to limited like, you know we find when, whenever we talk to anyone who's moldy they they straight away want to get into the purpose of work is to support communities and well-being which is actually really helpful because you know we, we in the sort of more pakeha world you think about the purpose of work is is more about creating products that fit into better supply chains which is it's fine but um it's still harder then to get into the people aspects you know happy people will work harder and longer they just will, and uh, but they'll be happier doing it and what they contribute towards. Mm. Probably because of all that community stuff, but in the Pākehā world, you don't talk about that quite yeah. so much. 
So the psychological impact then, or the psychological elements that you're talking about there, belonging and, and contributing and purpose-led mm. kind of is different, like you say, more transactional is the other side of that, right? It's like I'm doing this to pay the rent or the yeah, table is... Yeah, so I don't, don't want to create this sort of, you know, binary existence. Of course, but it's fun, just a... But yeah, it's just more of it. Illustration. Yeah, more of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I sometimes want... I was sort of thinking of what you were saying earlier about, you know, the different things that all of this contributes to. And um, I listened to you know, a podcast a couple of months ago, some American guy... You know, advocating for the power of local government, something like that. But I just remember him saying, like, you, you know, you go past, um, or you look at the sort of ticker tape on the bottom of any news channel, and it's usually sort of share price um, changes and fluctuations and so on. And I just remember him saying, what if you added to it? I leave that one, but add to it. Put, um, I don't know, stuff like um, unemployment rate and mm-hmm. how that has varied or changed or put on their you know life expectancy and shifts in that put on their you know child mortality or maternal mortality or you know start putting stuff like that up and just start to see what would happen how people would respond mm-hmm. you know not not in the immediate but more over a period of months or years like does it shift people's perceptions of of what what happens in society or what pulls it It'd be fascinating as yeah, a trial because be... we measure what matters and what matters we measure right and at the moment what gets measured and displays back to us doesn't really matter to us yeah you know carbon parts per million watch that you know, yeah nitrous oxide in cities watch that you know these are all things that are really yeah. important in the way we live our lives do you have any kind of dashboard systems in WorkSafe? around the idea of tracking and measuring what matters? Um, like live, you know, I'm just not, thinking. Not like that, yeah. no. I mean, it, I think partly because health and safety is so broad that whenever yeah. anyone's come up with something you could put a rag status next to, it's just felt wrong. Or it's just yeah, felt, yeah. I mean, some things are tracked, like, mm. uh, you know, notifiable injuries. When something really bad happens, you have to mm. notify work, say, for deaths. They're, they're tracked quite clearly, um, you know, partly because they will draw attention to things. Um, it's that classic yeah. case of, you know, there's been there's some out of days since something bad has happened on mm. a work site or something, you know, you see, one day since the last accident or something. You try to, yeah, yeah, that's a way of a tracking, but, yeah, yeah. we don't want to track that. Like, what is the positive inverse? Yeah tracking around health and safety it'd be fascinating to find. I'm always wish for health and safety that a different sort of narrative would pop up you know some mm. it's always terrible when someone dies at work um, but often the the response then is well what happened here or you know there's the 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 desire for gore you know what what were the events and what happened and what happened to this person mm. and then there's the um, who's accountable for this then, which is, you know, who made what mistake, what was missing out of their policies or supervision or something, which is, like, you don't learn anything once you bring that mindset. You just, you know, everyone sort of shrinks back and puts their head down and stops talking, Mm. which makes it really hard to learn about, well, what what happened here? Um, Mm. I I wish that a a framing would be brought that would, um, you know, whatever that person was doing before that, 
terrible event, it actually made sense to them to be doing it in their head. It's like they didn't plan on falling through that glass roof. It wasn't their choice. It wasn't something, oh, this will be great if. What they were doing made sense. So what was going through their mind that made that action a, a sensible thing to do? And you start to come into then, I guess, sort of decisions about, well, they're actually trying to get this task completed. It made sense to do that because, you know, it, it had to be done under this time frame. Whether or not the right tools were available or, you know, going the, the proper way, it was actually too long and convoluted. It wasn't set up to make the thing go well and then pressure to achieve something was you know actually what was driving a decision but it's not hunting yeah. it's not so much hunting who's responsible it's hunting what was the landscape here what was the conditions happening? yeah almost. what was the environment from yeah. the task design to the way that this organization is set up to mm. function and um and you start you start to understand what's happening very differently you can still find accountability at the end of it but perhaps for things that are a bit more mature you know, I guess you, you know sometimes um, you know people like these near misses you know we want right, yeah. to we want to track and record all of our near misses um, so he ends up with a lot of pressure on it because it's like you know and, uh, but it ends up just being like counterproductive I remember being in a logistics firm up in Auckland with a bunch of their sort of health and safety reps talking about health and safety and they were like yeah yeah near misses yeah trying to get everyone to report these are really important and the thing that when you, what they were saying was um, we want people to report the near misses. There wasn't anything in there about learning why they happened. Oh, it was we wanted to, you know, yeah. but that's what they were feeling like. it. And then remember we broke for, you know, having a little tea break. They all went over to the other side of this room and they were looking out the window, you know, having their little, you know, tea and biscuits. And, um, they, you know, they, it looked over the entrance to the goods yard, which is like you've got a main road here. A you know, narrow track coming into a good yard that, that opened out. It was the main way in and out for big trucks, mm. cars, and people. And um, and after talking about near miss reporting, got to get near miss. They were leaning out the window, looking out, having their tea, going, watching someone walk up this road. And they go, "Oh, geez, I wouldn't walk up there. No way. You know, <laughs> trucks coming around corners. You wouldn't be able to see. Like, you know, really exposed." And, and then after tea, they came back and sat down and talked about near miss reporting which I thought is just so mm. disconnected from, yeah. But that's, the, that's a trained mindset thing, though, what you're talking about, is to understand uh, the parameters of these potential issues, is that they only felt it in one area where you're thinking much more systematically, mm. which does bring me back to something that we've chatted about before, and I'd love Michelle to hear it as well, because I think you'd enjoy this is where you get your mindset from. And in terms of some of the experience you've shared with me, I can see where you get, you draw in, especially like the stuff that you did in the polar... Um, oh, that stuff, yeah. ...explorations with young people yeah. um, and stuff, and how you went about enabling them to experience and learn, but also reflect. Could you talk about what you were up to and yeah, yeah. what That's was your a... big takeaways? I guess you need a bit of context, don't you? The, the, one of the things I did many, many years ago was um, I worked for, volunteered with a, a youth development charity that was based in London that did sort of gap year stuff for, you know, late teenagers. And um, 
what they were wanting to do when I got involved with them was, was, I guess, make a new product. So you've been on your gap, you've been to university, maybe you're halfway through, and you still want to go out and have some adventures, but you want to have something that's a bit more substantial or meaningful than just your, you know, like shits and giggles. Can I say that? Yeah, just your shits and giggles, go get dangled off a rope and, you know, everyone will think it's wonderful kind of thing. It's an added value, I suppose. And um, so we developed a, like a... Like a leadership program, I suppose, that could be delivered in a remote environment. So we had a couple of months up on an ice sheet in the very northern edge of Norway. So you go up to the top of Norway, then you go over the seas to this little archipelago of islands, um, Svalbard or Spitsbergen. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's a tiny little town there that you fly into. And then we got on a little rip and went up a couple of hours and dumped a couple of months worth of stuff on a beach. A boat went, and that was it. So, you know, we had what twenty odd, like twenty to twenty-two year olds, and um, I guess the idea was: here's an environment that is so leveling. You know, partly the remoteness and isolation from it. Like, if something went wrong, just getting to a hospital would be days. And um, we made them into sort of little groups and said, well, you decide what you want to do, you, where you want to go. Our job as leaders will be to teach you the things you don't know how to do, you know, whether that's navigation or you know, some technical mountaineering things and so on, um, and keep you safe. So you come up with what you want to do. We'll help you know what you need to do to do it. And if, you, you know, if you're starting to cross over into dangerous territory, we'll either step in and make it safe or you know, go back to square one. And... Um, yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting, like, the experiences that they, that they have. You know, I guess it's all um, learning that everybody's good at different things. It doesn't matter if you're in charge, you don't have to need to be in charge of everything. You're just in charge of making sure this comes together and functions. Um, you know, and they were learning lots of things about perspective, I suppose. Like if you're walking along a glacier, you know, roped up, it's... You know, you've got someone else is like eight, eight ten metres in front of you, so you don't really know what they're doing or thinking. Um, and the next person is like eight, ten metres behind you. And, you know, the people at the back always get a bit frustrated. Like, why are we going so slow? I'm getting cold now. And, you know, because you have to move at the speed of the group, not your preferred speed. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why was being up the front is really scary because you might fall into a crevasse. You don't know where they are. That's, that's the... <laughs> That's usually the, you know, the telltale sign is when someone goes in. And, yeah, so you'd have all these kids up the back and they were going, oh, God, why are we going so slow? I'm getting cold. So we put them up the front and instantly they're like, punk, <laughs> Yeah, so there's quite a lot of, you know, learning about, about that. But I guess that was some of the other parts of that I talked with you before was, um, you know, the safety system that they had on... on I mean, this is my view looking back on it, but, you know, it wasn't that good. Like, it was made in London, drawn off experience of people, but it mm. wasn't suitable, you know. Like, there's polar bears up there, so everybody needs to be able to use a rifle to shoot the thing if it's charging at you. And, um, yeah, that, that's fine, but, you know, this is 20-odd people, and some of them have never even seen a gun, let alone have one put in their hands and terrified by it or just you know you could see some of them just seeing a rifle strapped to someone's pack they were just uncomfortable just yeah just with that and you know so I guess we 
started to make our adaptations, you know, well, not everyone needs to be able to do this because mm. some people, like, you could just see they just pick it up even when it wasn't loaded and scared. Like, there's no way you want them mm. using that if a, you know, an endangered animal is charging at them and you've got to kill it. Like, yeah. yeah, so it started making changes. That was good, though. Like, it showed, showed those young people that, not everyone needs to do everything. You, know, you guys are comfortable with this, so we'll put you in charge of that. Mm. You guys are comfortable with this, so we'll make you responsible for that. And it, you know, divide it's the time. Quite up. informative. It sounds like quite informative kind of uh, mindset approaches to thinking everything through as the leader there, responsible mm. for 20 humans, their health, uh, and their learning as well. And over that span of time in that such harsh environments, you need a certain, I think, mindset to think through all the parameters and all the possibilities and still want to do it, <laughs> I think, yeah. as well. Because you can imagine lots of scenarios where you don't want to carry on. But Yeah, well, I think it just, you had to be okay with not being in control. Mm -hmm. I, think. I find that with my kids now. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're quite able. They're, you know, my sense of what's, they're, you know, I guess sort of set up to do physically is is very different to theirs, and mm. I don't like my my sort of cautions or nervousness to affect them building their own. Like they're right. they're really competent and capable at climbing stuff, and yeah. you know, I always taught them from when they were really little about you know, just think about what you're doing and what you might have to do next, or the situation you might be in, and. Think about that and then make your decision about whether you want to do this or not. And, um, and it's led to them making really good choices about risk, I suppose. I sort of feel they're quite, they're confident in what they're able to do. Mm. And then make good judgments when they're in a situation about what to do with that. And, uh, cool. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's given over the control. You know, they've, mm. they've all had some slips and falls that have really hurt. But it's kind of, it's been part of their learning process, mm -hmm. I think. It's like, oh, actually, I can't, I'm responsible for that, you know. But you're really ability. comfortable in that chaos space you mentioned before. Yeah, I've learned to be. <coughs> I've learned to be. Mm. I think I've learned that it's, it's a bit more fun. But you also start to see people blossoming. You know, they realise what they're able to do, mm. even if it's not what I want them to be doing necessarily. But you start to see them bringing their own sense of self to mm. whatever they're doing. Yeah. I think those um, sort of circles back to the uh, initial conversation about courage, like actually to, to step out and actually make your own risk assessment and maybe it goes wrong, but you learn something along the way and next time you'll do it differently or you may approach a whole different scenario, but you'll have the tool sets of mm. making the assessment and... Um, making the decision and planning the action and I think um, that's a really empowering mindset so yeah well in terms of your leadership approaches what what are you kind of um, are really aware of in terms of yourself your mindset and also experiences and then having to lead a team and having a national focus as well in terms of what you do kind of talk about about your leadership journey and approach um, yeah, so <clears throat> I think I've, I've, I've learnt as I've gone um, okay. and through trial and error. And um, 
I think uh, one of the biggest learnings and it sort of kind of overlaps with what we were just talking about is probably that um, actually my way is only one way and actually um, making space for people to um, come alongside you and decide their own path and um, not be afraid to kind of let um, others kind of take the reins and decide where we're going a little bit and um, uh, my own uh, journey um, has been from uh, someone who probably would never see themselves in a role like I am now as okay. a, the CEO of an organisation um, but it probably had a I had mindsets about what that would look like, what that would mean and what that would be and what you would do in that kind of role. Um, I think having moved into the for-purpose sector, though, um, I'm a lot happier and just generally in terms of um, uh, the purpose of what we do um, compared to being in a... I've worked in the public sector, I've worked um, in publishing, uh, and I've even worked in a social enterprise where... Um, which was purpose oriented, but it was still making and selling stuff. Yeah. And I think I'm much happier in the space where we're getting stuff done that makes a difference, but isn't about consumer selling stuff yeah. related stuff. So, um, yeah. But my journey in terms in terms of achieving, like getting into the role I am in now, um, uh, I basically stepped out of the workforce. Um, for a bit when I had uh, twins because uh, we had another child so it was quite um, it was just a choice at that point that I was privileged to be able to do and, um, but actually I wouldn't have mentally coped with working and having three small children so mm-hmm. um, I well I obviously was still working um, but I wasn't yeah. being paid for it um, and it was awesome like I wouldn't change what, what, we, what I did at that choice yeah. um, just for the record <laughs> But it was hard. Yeah, um, of course. But th- yeah, then I started um, actually started working for my friend's social enterprise and ended up doing stuff that I wouldn't normally do in terms of <clears throat> um, sort of moved from legal and regulatory to publishing, but it was still yeah. legal publishing into um, marcoms, I guess. So blog writing, marketing stuff through social media. It was a much more outward communications focused mm. role and um, yeah I think at the same time I started volunteering a lot and I ended up accidentally becoming the president of a club um, and it was probably my first <laughs> uh, foray into you know that sort of leadership and um, yeah I think that's where I learned the hard way of you know my way is not the only way mm-hmm. um, and the, the you know delegating and um, sharing the load with the team. Mm. Um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, I've forgotten the rest of the question. <laughs> where you are now, right, in terms of your leadership approach and what you've learned, because obviously you've had time to reflect on those experiences. Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, I've learned, for example, that I actually love my job. I love the role of leading an organisation, Um even the, uh, some people might find this boring, like the finance and operation stuff. Um, we also have a sector voice role, 
um, which is yeah, that's uh, that's quite a, that's a big job for us to fulfil, and that is a leadership role, um, and it's yeah, leading on behalf of our members and being a voice on behalf of them and behalf of the sector mm. to government, but not just to government, to decision makers yeah. wherever they might be, and also back into organisations with information around best practice and, you know, valuing volunteers. Um, the, and it, it, yeah, I think we've previously maybe talked about um, being in, in that sort of sector leadership role, you've kind of got to balance out a range of stakeholder views and sometimes actually step out and, um, you know, have the courage to kind of say stuff that maybe needed to be said, which not everyone who you represent necessarily agrees with. Um, Yeah. yeah. In terms of my team um, and leadership, I think it's about um, sort of what we've talked on um, a bit already in terms of about making space for the team Mm. to kind of lead out in their area and um, to... Yeah, make space to not be the expert on everything, which is kind of mm-hmm. you know very aligned with what you have been talking about already, Rob. Um, yeah, and I think um, and maybe it's easier in smaller organisations to actually embrace change and new ways of doing stuff, and to but we can um, yeah, I guess we can try stuff and um, yeah, sort of mindset about. Um, it may it's okay to make mistakes like we can try stuff and it might not work as we expected but we'll still learn something along the way um, mm, yeah, and sure. I think because I'm at yeah. you know we're a small organization um, we're able to work in that way mm. we don't have to battle a lot of bureaucracy mm. I mean I still work to a board and I have stakeholders um, but I have oh, a lot of autonomy sure. in terms of you know how we do our work mm. yeah there's a lot of different leadership roles in there isn't there there's Team, hats, there's yeah. the budget and planning, there's the sector voice and you know, that role over a sector. Um, there's a lot of different types of leadership position, isn't there? In there? A lot of mahi <coughs> to do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely that's um and I think that um when I think about the, like the organisations that we might represent or work with or um there's so much leadership in there, and under that, um, volunteering or driving our own communities, there's leadership in that, like volunteering or doing something to make your community a better place is actually leadership mm. in itself of individuals and um, creating our own futures. So, yeah, it is definitely woven throughout. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think another lesson um, or... Um, I think people in my roles are often probably quite resilient, um, but I think the last couple of years I've realised that um, just being resilient isn't actually enough. You actually have to, even if you're highly resilient, you actually need to, um, you know, manage and model well-being for yourself um, and for your team. So, yeah. So, what, what do you do that keeps you going? Um, I have three awesome children. They keep me. Um, focused outside of work and busy so um, 
we got a dog, got a mini schnauzer. She's our chief wellbeing officer, so I, think, <laughs> um, I take her to work and share the shares that oh, role at work brilliant. and at home. Um, I'm, we're lucky to have a shared floor space where we can take animals, and yeah, so she yeah. lifts, you know, everyone in my organisation, but everyone else on the floor is always very happy to see her. Wow. Um, she gets lots of pets. Lots of pets. Wow. Earns her dog biscuits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Uh, can, I guess getting out, a bit of exercise, mm-hmm. um, and connecting with nature, and you know, going to the beach, that sort of stuff, um, and cooking, okay. just for oh, fun. Nice. Just, yeah. It's very, I don't enjoy it so much after work these days, but at the weekend I'll probably do a bunch of cooking, just, and it is very relaxing, mm-hmm. and creative as well, so, Definitely. yeah. Yeah. Are you a baker or a, a cook, or wh- where would you put your energies? I'm probably more of a cook than a baker because yeah. I, I really don't like to follow recipes. Kind of just. Oh, uh, you're more of a jazz. I just cook. <laughs> <Cross> them together, <laughs> improvise. Yeah, mm. and um, I think my husband would say I've never cooked the same thing twice, so it's always <laughs> different. Um, but with baking, you need to be a bit more precise. Yeah, it's more chemistry. More chemistry and. Yeah. I can't eat as much baking as I used to, so I just okay. get, you know, the more you bake, the more you eat. Just that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I think I used to bake an awful lot. And I actually, I, I cook now um, more than bake, but I think that everything I used to manage, um, yeah, is all that, you know, doing things for everybody else and, you know, you encourage this and, and you know, manage this and this mm. and that sort of thing. I think I used to like baking because... It takes as long as it takes, you know. There's it, there's no variance in it, you know. You mash yeah. the butter and the sugar together till it looks like that, <laughs> and then <laughs> you know whatever else you put in the eggs, it looks like that, and then it's in the oven for that long. And it was yeah, I yeah. quite like that, but I feel now, yeah, I probably cook more, but it's mostly because you can see what happens, you know. I sort of enjoying that that way of being much, yeah. much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. every now and then it turns out a bit weird, but yeah. yeah. It becomes much more um, surprising. Um, in terms of your question about what I do, I was I, I, I reflected just last night um, that um, because I, I play goalie for a floorball team, which a lot of people haven't heard of. No. It's a sport run out of ASB. It, it came from Canada. I think it's the the sport created for ice hockey summer summer league. Basically, okay. it's like indoor hockey, um, right. but I'm the goalie because um, I'm not fast like my team and right. I'm not very good at actually playing, but I actually enjoy being goalie. But basically, mm-hmm. it's 30 minutes of basically just focusing on the ball. Um, mm-hmm. And I realised last time it's, like, it's definitely like a total, um, yeah, not meditative, but like totally focused on something that's not cooking or work or yeah, kids. Yeah. <clears throat> Zen. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine you, like a little panther, ready to pounce. Yeah, I was. Yeah, and you could have got to, you know, be oh, ready right. for a rock to be thrown at your head, basically, and not <laughs> flinch. And that's actually quite. Um, yeah, I do sometimes flinch. Like I've got a, like a. Yeah, you would. That's um, natural. It's your brain. Yeah. So it's quite. It's quite. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it push, it's pushing me out of my natural instinct yeah. mode to kind of flinch. So mm. yeah, it's, it's fun. Good on you that's for great. 
getting yourself in that situation, like, that's tough. But like you said, it's sparking different things in your brain and chilling you out as well. Yeah. Fascinating. I think, um, I think I spend a lot of time coaching my kids' team. And I was like... Right. And, you know, there's a lot of um, evidence that, you know, a lot of adults don't go on to play sport. And um, I kind of thought, well, I need to do more exercise mm. and actually want the kids to see me doing it. <coughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And there's also something in there about playing as well. Like yeah. The, the idea of playing and having a hobby. Chatting to someone a couple of weeks ago about what happened to hobbies. And mm. just as that word, right, you very rarely say, sure, sorry, someone described their hobbies mm. or hobbying and, and stuff. And I get it because everything's been turned into side hustles and things now, mm. aren't they? It's like you can't just do one thing. It's got to be a hustle for you. Whereas playing, which is what hobbying mm. is, is playing with something, exploring it and expanding your mind in a different discipline. I've started sketching again and uh, really enjoy it with no purpose mm. in mind, uh, just to play and explore expressions. And same with you, being a goalie, that's expressive. It's a different type of expression. Yeah. What do you do that's completely random to what you are? Um, I've got quite an eclectic mm-hmm. mix of stuff I get up to, really. Um, I guess my way of unwinding is usually some sort of dangerous sport. But <laughs> mostly just because that thing, you know, you sort of 30 minutes just looking at the ball. And I just find, yeah, so I've, I've learned to kite surf in the last few years. As soon as you've got a big kite in the that's all you can think about is what's it doing, where's it going, where am I going, what do I... And it's, it's so grounding just being that focused on that, that one thing. That, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like the reset bump. You come off the water and you're tired anyway from putting a load of energy into it. But, um, yeah, it's just that single focus on what am I doing? You know, where are my feet? What's the water doing? What's that thing in the sky doing? And it, yeah, really calms yeah, me right In the right world down. rather than in, on a screen or yeah, yeah, yeah. in your mind. Yeah, yeah. So. but, you know, I guess I, I was just sort of thinking of you know, what you were saying about no particular purpose, mm-hmm. you know, in your sketching and... I, I, just, I, just, I hate setting objectives of, you know, what I do with all these things, you mm-hmm. know. Like, I, I just do what I feel like. Yeah. And you know, I've had a few friends that have, you know, said, oh, why didn't you do this event or something like that? And, and oh, I, I just yeah. hate the idea of it. I don't want to be, yeah. you know, in a process of training for something. or You know, I just want to mm-hmm. just flow with what I feel like doing. And I, I know I'm not very good at these things, but... I don't care. I, I remember surfing wanna... years ago and being bad at it. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Yeah. The attempt was the success. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm just very much there with it. I don't, I don't want to set an objective of I want to be able to do this or I want to yeah. be able to do that that fast. And, you know, and the learning's right through, right? It's, it's not you, you get mm. to the objective, you've learned something. You know, you've... Yeah. Um, I've always thought that with my kids when they learn musical instruments. I don't care if they come out of it being able to play mm. it well or not actually mm. what they do through it is they learn all sorts of different things like yeah. hand eye muscle coordination reading music sort of maths is in there mm. somewhere as well and <clears throat> having yeah, that but, exposure 
to that neuroplasticity going on because you've been exposed to different languages, language sets. And I've done that recently because I've just realised how much I rely on my old iTunes, you know, because I still got all my music that I uploaded, all my CDs at one point. And I just got that and shuffle constantly. And I just realised I'm not exposing myself to new music at all mm. in any way. So only recently I've been kind of hunting down new music. It's just like, yeah, I'm not been exposed didn't yeah thanks in terms of what you're focused on at the moment any projects that you'd like to kind of share and having fun with or is even giving you nightmares as well like being really challenging what's on kind of your next nine months to a ten years <laughs> um, mine's um mine's actually more of a management challenge I right. think um, so. We I, we've been trying to do this new way of thinking about health and safety, and you know, we've been at it for what two or three years now. And it it started out, you know, with um, well, how about we try this a bit different, like rocks, bricks being thrown at you, and you know, <laughs> like eighteen months ago, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, all right, you do what you want to do there, then, and you know, this year it's been. Um, hey, this is cool, this is actually going to help, isn't it? Like we've got people coming to us to help reshape the, the intention of what they're trying to do, I suppose. You know, like if you're going to license an activity, do you want to license the very minimum standard or do you want to license things to be set up to go well? Mm. You know, where do you want your bar to be? I mean, that's essentially the thinking that we're bringing. And, um, and it feels right now that it's right on the cusp of being a thing over here that we'll just watch and see what happens into being and like a, the start of a new normal. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's just tipping over into, into that, both within WorkSafe, but also the amount of organisations and people that we've connected to outside of WorkSafe too, that it's, like it's being pulled in both. We want to work in this way more. How can we set this up so it's a more legitimate thing for us to do? Yeah. And inside WorkSafe, it's understand that how do we make sure that our regulatory actions create that kind of thinking in the people that we engage with Mm. and i think for me like the next nine months is is just trying to just push it a little further into that this is now a systematizing thing not a separate thing that people are looking at going should we do something like that but actually just being a part of um what people want that's being pulled in. And I think I want to feel in nine months that with the range of projects and initiatives and people that we're meeting and working with, that our role is getting smaller because they're sustaining it themselves, asking the questions amongst themselves and and stepping off with it more on their own. Mm. I think that's where what my focus is. It's more of a management challenge, I suppose, than a mm. project or initiative in itself. It's also a championing role, it sounds like, as well. Like champion a new way of thinking, new way of doing, champion other people's already stories around impact, that they've already adopted it, or championing the other voices that you said earlier on, that guy who said, you know, and you're really open to that type of conversation, mm-hmm. championing those, those different voices that helps move that new project into more of a, an aligned um situation of, of a default hmm. rather than, oh, this is this outlier that used to sit out here. No, it's coming more default yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's cool, little problem. Yeah. Or challenge, not problem, challenge. Opportunity. Opportunity. For everybody Thank else. You, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. How about you, Michelle? Um, I, have, um, I have a similar feeling that we're on the sort of cusp of um, a, f- a few new things, to be honest. Um, we've um, just rev- revised our three-year strategic plan got a new ops plan to sit under that for the next year um, and uh, but also sort of sitting alongside that planning has been the impact of COVID mm. um, and actually moving like the first year we were very reactive and hugely busy and then last year we were, thought it might get back to normal <laughs> and we'd kind of just keep doing what we always did like a, a face-to-face conference um, but now I think we've settled in a space where we're um, actually um, embracing doing things differently and trying some different stuff and taking the opportunity, for example, not running a face-to-face conference, um, but instead actually having a really, taking that time to look at what our offerings are um, in that, I guess, yeah, learning and sector support space um, and challenging ourselves to make it more accessible Mm. and to serve more people over the next, or more organisations. Um, and I don't know if we'll, we'll get it all done in nine months, but um, over the next couple of years we'll be looking at mm. um, some of our guidance that's already out in the sector and with an inclusion and um, tertiary lens. We'll be obviously finishing off our state of volunteering report. Um, and... Um, we definitely have a very strong focus from us, um, which will flow down from our strap plan through our operations um, in the youth space. So um, enabling and, I guess, um, yeah, leading out in terms of how we, um, you know, alongside the sector, enable uh, better engagement with younger demographics. Lingering on the young people, they, you mentioned earlier on about an emerging, sorry, a, a, an outgoing set of volunteers because they're aging out almost. And then there was a challenge about engaging younger people. Those two demographics have very different principles and purpose-led ideas about the world and where they want to put their time, volunteering. And we had the... Um, Deputy Children's Commissioner, Maori Children's Commissioner, Glenison, talking about you know the biggest issues the young people want to talk about are really simple around climate change, you know, DNI diversity and inclusion uh, or equality and something like that, and mental health. Uh, and there's some other peripheral, definitely, but those are the big three she was talking about. And like, it's probably very different to the other end of the um, demographic sector. So I'm wondering, kind of, how are you then going to have to shift? Or just reposition, I suppose, your, your, your focus is on more those three big things. Not that you're not doing it anyway. I'm sure you're doing a lot in those spaces. But are you kind of prepared for that shift in mindset and focus? I guess as an organisation in ourselves, um, we uh, challenge, you know, inclusion and diversity is something that we have, um, you know, we, we try to lead out on what we're, um, in terms of those younger demographics and what they're interested in compared to what organisations are offering yeah. is where the challenge can sit. And I think um, one of the things I think 
um, I'm quite conscious that we need to do as a, a sector voice is to actually shift some of the um, perceptions and narratives because often you'll hear um, maybe a, someone from an established organisation or an older mind, older demographic mm. saying, well, youth just don't want to engage with us. Um, or they're not, they're, yeah, they don't want to participate, which we know is absolutely not the truth. And um, so it's about um, helping, I guess, shift mindsets within mm. organisations, but also help organisations as best we can as a very small uh, sector voice um, mm-hmm. uh, refocus about on how they might engage with youth um, mm-hmm. rather than going they don't want to fit into our existing structures um, it's like what yeah. Structures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah how can you yeah mm. go to youth talk to youth yeah. um, and um, th- there is some recent research out of Christchurch where they interviewed 25 young people um, and their experiences in volunteering great um, piece of research and read, but uh, um, it did highlight the kind of disconnect often between established organisations and what um, younger people are mm. interested in and what they uh, want to do um, in terms of their contribution mm. um, to their communities. Um, yeah, and there's a mismatch. Yeah. So it's just sort of... Um, That's good, that, that creates a fluidity, right, of change in nature of both the offer and the possibility. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, the possibility could look so amazing yeah. um, if we could just get a bit closer together. Yeah, but a um, little challenge for you, or opportunity, yeah. <laughs> as Rob would frame it. Yes. Mm. In terms of, have you got any questions? I feel like I've been poking you a little bit too much. Apologies. No, I've been asking you quite a few. Yeah. Um. One I was wanting to ask before mm. when you're talking about the exhibition, uh, expedition, expedition, expedition. Yeah. What led you to that role, and how did you end oh. up being <laughs> able to lead <laughs> um, twenty people in that space? Oh, well, it wasn't just me leading them. I was just a leader in a group. Um, oh, I've I've never known what I've wanted to do with my life, and I, I still don't now. And I think I left university with a mediocre degree and yeah I got on a really good graduate scheme um, I was doing very well in I hated it you know it's like you, you can be really good at something and not enjoy it mm. um, so outside of that I just threw my energy into all sorts of different things I got into you know endurance sports I got into sort of mountaineering and stuff like that and all the time I was just experimenting with them um, what do I want to do? Oh, it's the wrong question. It's like, what do I want to be? You know? And uh, um, so I did all these things. I did some sort of mountaineering qualifications. I did some sort of personal training ones as well along the way. And it was really just sussing out: do I want to do that as a career? You know, a lot of the entry points into that way of working or that sort of skill were um, drop everything, fully commit to a series of courses, and then go and work in low pay. And I was just. Oh, Oh, and yeah, that was a sort of pathway in, I suppose, and allowed me to try it. And I mean, I did learn that I like doing my outdoor stuff, but I don't want to do that for a living, um, which is a good thing for, for me to learn. Yeah, so it's just one of those wiggly, windy career <laughs> paths, I suppose. I think yeah. that actually highlights um, 
one of the opportunities in volunteering, which is you can test out stuff um, mm. that you think you might want to do, or you can, um, just, yeah. you know, and before you commit to it on a longer term basis through retraining or um, giving up a job that you already have to go into something new. Um, and I think there's also um, there's a the element to pick up a lot of transferable skills um, that you you know for younger people moving or people moving into new roles you can pick up things through volunteering that um, help you on your journey into something different or something new. So. Just pretty much exactly me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, my employer supported it because it was pro bono. Um, you know, the organisation well they got something out of it and, and I got something out of it. Yeah. I've often, um, in different ways I've talked about how I got to the job I am in now, I've often said I've volunteered my way into it because basically <laughs> through the, yeah, the volunteering I did, I picked up skills along the way that enabled me to you know, mm. do this role. Yeah. That's a great story right there yeah. because it so aligns with what you're doing right now. It's kind of a great outcome. In terms of like uh, closing this out, being respectful of your time, and uh, that hope question about what are you hopeful for? We've had a rough couple of years, all of us. We've had a shared global experience that's kind of, for some people, swept them away or swept their legs from beneath them or whatever. But uh, other people have enjoyed it, weirdly. I spoke to a couple of people recently, and one of them was a PhD student. It was like, great, just got to do my PhD head down because I couldn't go anywhere else. It's like, of course, some people have reacted differently. But we kind of not coming to the end of something we feels like we're coming to the end of the start of something mm. this COVID but, mm. but in terms of just feeling a bit hopeful where, where do your hopes lie in terms of projects ideas or just globally as well how are you feeling you want to go first sure um, yeah I think it does feel like we're on at the start of the end of something but also mm. it's very hard to see you know I think I've embraced not knowing where it might go and it may still look a bit messy in the future and that's just part of how we've got to roll. Um, yeah, I hope that we can, can... For me, I've in the last couple of weeks, I've had more face-to-face meetings with people and seen friends and caught up with people. So I hope that whatever the future looks like, I'm able to kind of yeah, really connect with friends, family and other people. That's really... Um, part of why I volunteered in the first place, why mm. I kind of love my job, while I love working in the office rather than working remotely. <laughs> um, I hope that the flexibility that we've created um, re- remains for those mm. who need it and want it um, as well. And I think um, I- I've always, um, in our office environment, we're able to be flexible, but most of us actually want to come into the office and have coffee and see each other um, and collaborate. Um, I hope that um, the sort of shift in public dialogue around towards embracing equity, um, you know, that's a massive hope, but I hope we keep going down that track and that we mm. deliver on it. Yeah. Love that. Mm. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, um, I'm one of those people that's loved it, I'm afraid. We'll <laughs> <laughs> get okay, COVID. That's so, loved. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it's not been that for many people. Mm. But um, I just hope it's a reset for people in general. I'll probably be a bit more generic than what you've said, although I 
see what you've said and how I feel about it, but you know, can we make better choices about what we do and how we spend our time? That balance of work and life and where we are. You know, all of those choices were available to us before all of this, but you know, it's an event that triggers the use. Mm. Um, yeah, is there a better way of engaging in life? What, mm. what work is for, what it achieves for us and how we spend our time that's perhaps a bit better for the planet and for us as a collective and as individuals. I want to echo that as well, because the recent Australian elections uh, get rid of a, a very happy, cold, hungry body who is in charge to this new, more uh, environmentally considerate mm. uh, bunch of people and ask where we really need to go, you know? Thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful to sit down with you again and always a, a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay. It was nice to meet you it too. It was very nice to meet yeah. you. Mm, yeah, great to chat. That was Creative Welly, episode 32. You're very welcome to it. Thank you for devoting some time and energy. Thank you, thank you, thank you for subscribing as well. If you haven't subscribed, you're listening to this randomly, check us out on creativewelly.com, spelt as it sounds. My name is DK, the creative producer. Again, big shout out to John O'Tucker, who's the video producer over at Empire Films, and David Hamilton for hosting us at Flash Dog Studios. We'll keep producing great content as long as you keep having courageous conversations with bold humans. We'll hear from you or see you next time.